0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this past week. We thank you that as we were able to gather, as we we could, uh, with family members or friends, I pray that it was a blessed time. I pray that we are still in that mindset of thankfulness, of not thinking about things the way the world thinks of them, you know, the very next day being Black Friday and everybody thinking about what they can get uh, immediately after the day that we focus being thankful on. Lord, I pray that our mind would still be focused on being thankful, uh, that we would remember all the little things that we often take for granted and praise you for them and thank you for them, because you don't have to give them to us, but you are good and perfect, and you are our good Heavenly Father. And you make sure we have what we need. Lord, as we open up your word and we take a look at what parable you have for us today, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts, that we wouldn't set up any walls in between us and you. You tear all those down. That it may just be us and you and hear what you have for us today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's some pretty huge blunders in history where someone had come up with a plan, but in time, whether short or long, that plan did not turn out the way that person intended. And in the following true historical events, one small detail that was overlooked resulted in massively unintended consequences. For instance, in 1453, The Ottoman Empire was seeking to lay siege to and conquer the Byzantine Empire's capital city of Constantinople. The walls of Constantinople were generally regarded by everyone in that world as impregnable. But there was one seemingly small but fatal mistake made one night. One night as the Ottoman Turkish army lay outside the city one poor soul accidentally left one of the city gates open. He just forgot. Someone noticed in the Ottoman camp, and 50 Ottoman soldiers snuck in, raised their flag over that part of the wall, and caused such confusion and deflated morale that the Ottomans eventually fully overtook the city from that point forward. It was renamed Istanbul, one of the most populous cities in Turkey to this day. In 1990, the band We Are Giants produced an updated version of the 1953 original by the four lads named Inst- Istanbul, or not, Constantin- not Constantinople. Maybe you've heard that song before. And it gives a warning. This whole story gives a warning to all of you who accidentally leave your front gate open. Not really. It's not, it's not ever going to be that bad of a, of a consequence. And in 1914, making a wrong turn, literally caused a world war. We all know from our high school history classes the name the Archduke Ferdinand, right? We've all heard that name before, whose assassination is what launched most of the developed world into World War I. And not many of us perhaps know how it happened. On June 14, 1914, the Archduke's automobile driver was driving him to where he needed to go. However, the driver made a wrong turn and started going down a street where the eventual assassin named Gavrilo Principe was enjoying a sandwich. He was just sitting there, enjoying a sandwich. When the driver realized his mistake, he braked hard, causing the car to stall out and giving Prince ample time and opportunity to murder the Archduke, causing the spark that ignited World War I. To make a joke about men not asking for directions, but it seems like they're being poor taste with that. In these real-life examples, certain people had a plan, and that plan did not work out at all the way that they intended In both of these cases, the results were completely disastrous. In our parable today, a certain man makes a plan, and that plan most certainly does not work out the way that he wanted it to. We'll see how the plans we make in our lives today could prove to be just as disastrous, and what crucial truth must be the way that we view our lives. In the case of the parable last week, the best understanding of this parable just like uh, last week, is directly tied to what comes immediately before and immediately after. Again, similar to last week, this parable is nestled in the middle of Jesus' greater point surrounding it. If you turn to Luke 12, starting in verse 13, so if you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. Luke chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 13. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to Luke 12 or look it up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize what's in there first before we get to the parable. What precipitates this whole story is that one day as a crowd is surrounding Jesus, a man in the crowd shouts out to Jesus, tell my older brother to give me some of the money that he got from the family inheritance. Make him do it, Jesus. And here's the thing, as noted by one biblical scholar, the eldest brother had every right to the customary double portion of their father's inheritance, what was known as his birthright, as the firstborn. What this younger brother was demanding Jesus help him out with truly revealed this man's heart. That's what sparks this parable that Jesus then gets into. This guy had no legal right to his eldest brother's inheritance share, and no judge would grant it to him. But instead of dealing with that in his own heart, he let his greed dictate how his life was going to go, even so far as to wage a legal war with his own brother and try to drag Israel's Messiah into his personal, messy, and already foregone legal battle. So Jesus, seeing the obvious state of this guy's heart, uses this as an opportunity to teach that man and the entire surrounding crowd a very important truth. He says this next. Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. And in our lives, that means even the kinds of greed that are socially acceptable, or maybe the ones that we don't even really think about, those small kinds of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. He's going to go on to talk about what our life is measured by, but up front he's already talking about it's not by how much you own. These few short sentences are what directly lead into Jesus' expounding on that truth. Your life must be viewed in a completely different way than how much money you have, or what's more relatable, especially these days, how little money you have. That's what brings us to this morning's passage, verses 16 through 19. Please read along with me. And he told them a parable of saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store all these crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, (laughs) you have have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. How dangerous are those words? Right? All right. We have a rich man who, according to one biblical scholar, is one of the top 1% of the Jewish population living in Palestine in Jesus' day. He would be one of those guys being protested against, What the 1%. He was truly what one could describe as one of the rich and famous today, one who was ridiculously wealthy. This man wouldn't normally work his own fields. He would hire other men to do that back-breaking field work for him. So these verses are not rebuking the man for how he acquired all of this extra wealth. Jesus is not rebuking the man in this parable for being lazy or not working for his extra wealth. That's a lesson that's come by falsely, that, that, that you may have heard before or come to your own conclusion uh, over by a cursory reading of this. But what that does is that rips this story out of its immediate context. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. This man, already wealthy, is now astronomically and unlimitedly wealthy. But Jesus isn't even rebuking the concept of having a bunch of wealth on this earth. He's not even getting at that. So what is the rebuke, and what is the point Jesus is getting at here? It's the same heart and mindset that the guy who just yelled out from from the crowd had. It's this man's heart and mindset that Jesus is rebuking. And we get that point in what we read next. In verses 20 through 21. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse 20 is another telling of the old adage, you can't take what you own on this earth with you when you die. It's a retelling of that. Even though that man has astronomic wealth in this earthly life, when it comes to his soul, he has absolutely nothing worthy of God's eternal inheritance. We see why in verse 21. There was nothing wrong with that man having a prosperous harvest. There's nothing wrong with him having an abundance of crops, but it was what he did with that abundance of crops that was the glaring problem. He says, what am I going to do with all these crops? That's the, that was the turning point in his life. That was the turning point in his line of thinking, in his, in his mind. What am I to do with all these crops? He had two choices there. Hoard them all for himself by tearing down what barns he already had, good and perfect barns he already had, tearing those down and building brand new spanking new ones, or taking the surplus that he had and giving it to those who needed it. Those were his two choices. Instead of taking from the abundance he had and feeding the poor that surrounded him, he chose to ignore their hunger and cries Just so he could not have any worries about the near future. Just so he could have convenience in this earth. That was the huge problem that Jesus was addressing. It wasn't the fact that this rich man had an abundance of wealth, it was how he viewed it and what he did with it that was incredibly dangerous. Being rich towards God at the end of verse 21, in this context, would have been feeding the poor with a surplus. This man was operating under a tremendous falsehood that storing all of his surplus grain in newly built barns was a guarantee of a worry-free life. He was operating under a tremendous falsehood. As one biblical scholar noted, there was nothing stopping any of those barns from what? Catching fire, right? And burning down, along with all the grain stored in it. And nothing stopping thieves from stealing it from him. As one of the early church fathers, Augustine, said in preaching on this, he did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Not only would feeding the poor with the surplus grain be the safest place to put it, removing the threats of fire or decay or thievery out of the equation, but it was the best investment for his soul, wasn't it? The act of feeding the poor the poor, with his surplus in and of itself, as we know from the rest of Scripture, was not enough to save his soul. We know that that only comes through faith and, and, and basing your faith on the salvation that Jesus paid for on the cross on your behalf. But it would have revealed where his heart was. That's what it would have done. It would have revealed where his heart was. Remember, according to Jesus, the whole Jewish law could be wrapped up In two commandments, right? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not loving your neighbor and being generous with what you have, there's nothing wrong or there's something wrong or missing with you loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can't say you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and not love your neighbor. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And that's the all-too-important lesson for us today. It's not sinful to have much when it comes to wealth or worldly belongings on the earth. But the crucial question is, what are we doing with them? How do we view them? Are we hoarding them? Are we building more wealth for ourselves in this world? Or, as the verse is very plain about, being rich toward God. This is straight out of the word of God, so don't stone the messenger here, okay? Here's the underlying truth, whether or not we like it, and no matter how much we try to ignore it. Everything that we have on this earth, whether it be much or little, has been given to us by God to be good stewards of it. It's not ours. That's the underlying truth. What you own is not really your own. God told the Israelites, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And he also said, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, including everything we think we own. The most telling truth is found in Deuteronomy 8. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you are to remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth in order to confirm his covenant. Anything that we have comes from him. Anything God gives to us, he gives to us to use for him. Yes, we must use it to take care of our physical needs and the needs of our families. But in directly talking about these words in this parable, how are you being rich toward God? How are you being rich toward God? Taken directly from verse 21 in our parable this morning. You might say, well, I'm being rich toward God in all these other ways. But this parable is speaking directly about what? Finances. It's speaking directly about that. You guys know I don't often talk about this. But since this is directly connected to this morning's parable, I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up. Are you fulfilling God's instruction, expectation, and command to give your tithe back to him from what is really his to begin with? I could go through all the scriptural evidence about why the tithe continues into the New Testament and into today. I'm going to spare you from that today. But it's there. The word tithe literally means 10%. That's what tithe means. It's a transliteration of the original word. It means 10%. And from God's word, we clearly see that it is 10% of our first fruits or the best of what we have. Translating to today's understanding, we don't have a bunch of sheep, we don't have a bunch of fruit, that or crops that we, that we tend to. This would be, so this would be 10% of whatever income we receive from God, the first fruits of it. Whether it's a paycheck or a retirement check or a government check, and the best of that, the first fruits of that, which would be what? The gross amount, before anybody else gets their hands on it. This tithe goes back to God by funding his work. Taken straight out of this parable. By funding his work. The main agent of God's work is coming from what? His church, right? That which Jesus himself told Peter he was building upon himself. The New Testament instructs that we regularly give that. Set that aside each time we get paid, each time we get whatever check it is we get, and systematically give that to God's church and God's church's work on a regular basis. If not, what ends up usually happening? We can all be honest here. We're humans. What usually ends up happening? We forget. It goes right out of our mind. We forget. It's very easy to forget. But then it's very easy to forget again and again and again. And then what ends up suffering? Because we keep forgetting about it. Well, God's work. That's what ends up suffering. Forgetting, again, I think I can be honest with you guys. Forgetting is not an excuse. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, when we remember and then conveniently forget again, it's because we really just don't want to give that back to God. That's really what it comes down to. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Let's not not come up with cover stories here. And in connection with our parable this morning as well, above and beyond that regular tithe, what are we also supposed to do with what God has blessed us with? Above and beyond that, we're supposed to give to the poor and give to the needy and fund other work outside the church, usually in connection with helping out the poor and needy. What did the rich man do Neither one of these things. There's no indication he gave anything to the temple, and we know outright he refused to give anything to the poor. So if we have earthly wealth that we only have, again, because God is the one who gave it to us, in order to steward for him wisely, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? Just like with the rich fool, what is what we're doing with it really revealing about our hearts? How does what we're doing with it show what we really care about in this fleeting world and the very short lives that we live? Again, you can't take it with you. What are you investing in? Jesus gives us, speaks directly to that when he says, don't store up treasures here on earth. Just don't do it. (laughs) You're just opening up trouble for yourself. Don't store up treasures here on earth. Where moths eat them and rust destroys them or thieves break in and steal. It's going to happen. Store your treasures in heaven. There, they're untouchable. Nobody can touch them there. How do we store up treasures in heaven? By making heavenly investments. By spending the earthly money we have now on what really matters for eternity. Making eternal investments. Giving back to God by furthering his work through his church is one big way of showing his love towards him. And that's what? The greatest commandment. And giving back loving God. And giving back to God by giving to help the needs of the poor in our community is following the second commandment, right? Loving your neighbor. See, following these two commandments is not only re- is not only relegated to every other area of our lives except for the money God has given to us. We can't just say, God, you have every you have you, you can touch every other area of my life except for my money. Hands off that. It also extends to that area as well. When Paul tells the Corinthians, your body is not your own anymore. You've been bought with an impossibly high price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. That extends to every area of our bodies. That extends to every area of our minds and our hearts including how we see what God has given to us. Remember, as Jesus warns at the end of this parable, you can't take anything with you when you die. All you can have in heaven is what you're building up for yourself now. That which is an eternal investment. Any investments in this world eventually fade away. Some of us know that all too well with the stock market, And sometimes they ultimately fade away, and and ultimately, always, they fade away when we die. The only investment that will last for eternity is how we use the money God gives us now to honor Him and to further His work in this earth. Again, I don't talk about this much, so please don't shut me out. Keep keep staying with me. Now, there are many sitting here or watching later online that will say, Well, let me tell you what, having too much money is not my problem. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Here's the thing. The truths in God's word that we just went over still apply. They don't differentiate between people. It doesn't matter how much money or how little money we have. Whose is it still? It's still God's, no matter how much or how little we have. It's still God's that he has given to us to steward wisely and to give back to him by way of the tithe and above and beyond generosity and to use to make eternal investments. That's why he's given it to us. This is especially true during this pandemic. We can't use this pandemic as an excuse. Does God's word ever change? Does it ever change depending on what situation we're in? No, and it's the same even now. This pandemic is not an excuse to be stingy with God. I'm sorry. God's word originally spoke to people from all financial backgrounds and had the same universal truths for everyone. From the wealthy church members who opened their homes and fed the congregants of the early churches in the first and second centuries to the destitute and impoverished members of the Jerusalem church during a devastating famine in the first century. The same truths applied to the whole spectrum, to people of all different backgrounds. The commandments for how they were to see their finances as gods for God's work didn't change depending on the amount nor the circumstances. So why should they change for today? It's the exact same for us today. And I know that this pandemic, and I know that the uncertainty with the recent election and everything going on right now, they've caused a lot of fear. And I want to be sensitive to that. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, does God's truth change in the face of fear? Especially in the face of fear. No. In fact, it's solidified, and it's made stronger in the face of fear. Amen? Amen. Does God's truth somehow change or be rendered powerless or even useless when circumstances change? No. No. In fact, it's made stronger. God's truth and expectation for our tithe and above and beyond helping of the poor still do not change. Whether it was the, the boom of a couple of years ago, or as we're limping through 2020, it doesn't change. No matter what the circumstances are, and that's for better or for worse, it still doesn't change. And here's why. How? Can, yeah, I know this is everybody's big question in their mind right now. Why? Why does it not change? Here's why. God's faithfulness towards us never changes. That's why his expectations for us never change. Because God's faithfulness towards us never changes. No matter what our circumstances are, what does change, especially during a pandemic, especially during an economic downturn, especially during this wonderful year of 2020, is what's revealed to us about our hearts. That's what changes. When things get hard, it's what's going on in our hearts that's really revealed to us. And more importantly, it points out to us with a very strong finger where our faith really is. In times of uncertainty and fear, everything is laid bare. And what we do with our money that he's given to us, whether we suddenly then refuse to do with it that he instructs us to do with it, or whether we continue to be faithful to following that, becomes glaringly apparent. That's what ends up happening. It becomes glaringly apparent. Not to everyone else. Who does it become glaringly apparent to? To us, and most importantly, to God, right? The warning Jesus gives in this parable also applies to those situations. Are we giving too much power to the fear connected to worldly finances and then allowing that fear to dictate how faithful we are to God with them? Is that what we're going to do? Or are we still storing up treasures for heaven and making eternal investments by still being faithful with our tithe and giving to the needy? This is what it all comes down to. It all comes down to faith. That's what it really all comes down to. Thinking it all comes down to the amount of money in our bank account and whether or not we have enough to give our tithe and give to the needy, that's a falsehood. That's a mirage. That's what the enemy wants you to be focused on. It's what the enemy wants you to be focused on and be held down by and remain in fear and be remain under his thumb with. Here are the empowering truths of God's word to combat that And to empower us to have the faith to still do what God instructs us to do with what he's given to us. And is really all his to begin with. The same truths we started out this section with still apply. God is still the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's still the one who owns everything in this world. So anything you have is still all his. And he still has the right to call the shots on what you do with it. Secondly, Jesus gives us these undeniable promises. In fact, these promises immediately follow Jesus' parable in Luke 12, illustrating a book ending point. You can glance through those following the parable. And on, on one hand, we can't be greedy with our finances. And oppositely, we can't be faithless with our finances either. We can't be greedy with our finances, and we can't be faithless with our finances. In both cases, we must be faithful with our finances. In Matthew's record of the exact same thing Jesus says in Luke 12, 22 through 31, we read, so don't worry about these things. I don't know how many times we need to read that for that to get into our heads. Don't worry about these things. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? The, who's the one, who are the people who these worry about these things all the time? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. You've been given a gift. You've been given a heavenly father through Jesus Christ who already knows all your needs. He already knows them. So why do we keep holding that back from God saying, I just don't, I don't think you're going to do it. I don't believe you. I don't think you're actually going to come through to me, for me. It shows where our faith really is. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Even with our finances. (laughs) Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. How many times do we need to read that? How many times do we need to say that? How many times do we need to claim that before we actually believe it's true? He will give you everything you need. That promise is the basis, the foundation for how we must view everything in our lives and specifically our finances. God will provide everything you need. God will provide the food you need to eat. God will provide the money you need to pay your bills, your basic bills, water, heat, and electricity. God will provide a roof over your head. And God will provide the clothes you need to wear. God will provide for all your basic needs. In fact, Jesus commands us at the very beginning of this, so don't worry about any of them. What are we to worry about? Seeking the kingdom above all else. That's what we are to worry about. And what's a part of that? Giving back to God what he instructs to further his work in his kingdom on his earth. Our tithe to the work, God's work through the local church in this community. And our giving to the needy on top of that. The very basic promise that God will provide for our needs then also answers the fear-filled question, but what if I give my tithe and I give to the needy and I don't have enough to pay for my needs? There it is. There's the answer right there. You can already see that even asking that question is a faithless question, isn't it? Jesus already made the promise that God would, and since it's God who also expects us to give us our tithe and give to the needy, nothing changes that promise. In fact, Paul comes right out and confirms this explicitly when he commends the Philippian church for giving above and beyond their tithe to his missionary ministry. And he says, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself praises the poor widow who gave her tithe to the temple. And it was literally all she had. So again, asking the question, will God give me enough to give him his tithe and give to the needy and provide for our needs. Asking that question reveals where our heart is and what kind of faith we really have in God. You might say, sure, Pastor. That's easy for you to say. That's easy for you to stand up front and say these things because you're being provided for you can have the faith to know that God will provide for you pretty easily. I don't have that certainty. Let me tell you a story. Five years ago, that wasn't the case at all, at all. Cheery and I, along with our one-and-a-half-year-old, and a half year old, pregnant with our second child, had to leave our impoverished first church I was pastoring to give it a fighting chance to stay open. We might say big wood. But along with that, we also had to leave the parsonage that the church owned. You resign, guess where you can't live anymore? Parsonage. We had to leave the parsonage that was our home for the first five years of our marriage. Five years ago, we had no home, we had no income, we had no pastoral position on the horizon, we had a one and a half year old, and we had another one on the way. That was scary. We slept on a mattress on the living room floor of Cherry's parents' already full house, while I secured or while I scoured pastoral position listings and followed up on every connection I had in the ministry world. And guess what? For months, nothing was happening. Nothing was working out. As Cherry's parents live in Staten Island, New York, I remember taking our one and a half year old out for a walk. And sitting on a bench on the harbor front, looking across New York Harbor at the still unfinished Freedom Tower across the way in Manhattan. And saying to God, Lord, I have no clue what your plan for my family and me is. doesn't look like there's anything happening right now. I have no clue what your plan for me is. And I have no prospects even to put any hope in. All I can do is trust you. That's literally all I can do. All I can do is trust you that if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen through you. A couple weeks after that, a kind gentleman named Glenn Exa, who's not able to be with us today, called me from a church named Fellowship Church in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. God kept opening doors, and here we are. Coming up on five years. Funny how things work that way. January 1st, it'll be five years. I can tell you that when God promises to provide for our basic needs, no matter what, even when everything looks impossible, he will always make good on those promises. Always. So what are we fearful of? What are we scared of? And I am 100% sure that every person here, sitting here watching online later, has a story where God provided for you in an impossible situation. So why would any of us, why would any of us have any reason to doubt God that he's going to keep doing it? Where is your heart? Jesus said, Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart also is. There the desires of your heart will also be. So where's your heart? Is your heart living only in this world like the rich fool, only focused on worldly investment and worldly wealth, or only focused on the lack of worldly wealth and being fearful of that, or is it focused on using what God has given to you to build his kingdom and thereby by making eternal investments? Heed both Jesus' warnings and Jesus' promises. None of us has any excuse. Let's just get rid of them. Can we just get rid of them now? Can we get rid of all the excuses now? Let's just get rid of any excuse. No matter what the circumstances are. God is forthcoming very forthcoming in his promises, as we all can attest to here. But for some reason, we just keep ignoring them or conveniently forgetting them. God has been very forthright about his promises. God will always make good on those promises, both providing for what we're supposed to give back to him and our basic needs lastly i didn't want to focus on this but it's biblical truth never underestimate the blessings your good heavenly father will give to you for your generosity and giving back to him Amen. never underestimate those blessings malachi 3 10 says bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple if you do says the lord of heaven's armies I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. And the only time God says in the Bible to put me to the test is here. Try it. Put me to the test, he says. The only place in God's word where God says, test me. And Paul tells the Corinthians in thanking them for their financial generosity. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way. He's talking financial terms here. So that you can always be generous. And when you take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. Eternal investments. Brothers and sisters, do not cut off your blessings. Don't cut off your blessings that come directly from God because of your fear. Don't let the enemy speak so loudly in your ear that you take that fear and you put it in the way of what's that line of Blessing and you use that fear to cut those blessings off. Don't cut off your blessings directly from God because of your fear. Don't live by fear, but live by faith, even and especially with your finances. See, our financial decisions are not somehow disconnected from our faith. It's not, here's everything about my faith, and my finances are somewhere over here. They're not somehow disconnected from our faith. And really, if we stop and think about it, what we do with our finances outwardly and loudly show where our faith really is. It really shows where our priorities are. And that's not me coming up with something out of thin air to prove a point. That's the entire point of Jesus' parable for the end. It shows where your heart really is. So, be empowered and inspired to show who your faith really is in by giving generously back to Him. And let us be good witnesses to a watching and fearful world who's running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Let us be good witnesses to a watching and fearful world with how we even view and use the finances that God gives to us. And again, really are His Anyway, and let us witness, let us witness what will be unleashed by God's power in our individual lives and through our church when we obey him in this. I want to close with Paul's words to the Corinthians. Don't close your Bible yet. I don't want to hear anybody close your Bible yet. I want to close with Paul's words to the Corinthians in direct connection with how they must see the giving of their finances to God's work, and how we must see the regular giving of our finances to God's work. This is what he tells them. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Where's your heart? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it remains true, and it never changes, even though our circumstances change, even though things may be a little bit scary. Lord, I pray that if we're allowing our fear and fear of the uncertainty to keep us from doing what you command us to do, Lord, I pray that you would remove that. I pray we would stop thinking about things in a faithless way, I pray that we would stop asking faithless questions. I pray that we would stop making faithless excuses, but that you would make changes in our hearts. You would fill us with your boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit to say, I know that my God will provide for my needs and what he wants me to give to his work. Lord, I pray that we would be witnesses of faithfulness, of boldness, of courage, of knowing who we're really putting our faith in, and that you will always take care of us, you will always provide for our needs. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.